Welcome to No Matter What. I'm Hannah Seymour, and this podcast is all about being who God created you to be no matter what. No matter your past, your current circumstances, no matter your relationship status, your career journey, no matter what life throws at you. Each episode, I invite a friend to talk about what that actually looks like, to be who God created you to be no matter what. Welcome back to No Matter What, y'all. I am so excited today. I have Dr. Deb Gordon on the phone. And let me just tell you, this is a line that is in her latest book, Embracing Uncomfortable. The line says, I quote, I know who I want to be, how I want to be, and where I want to be, no matter my season or circumstance. Does that or does that not sound exactly like what we talk about on No Matter What every single week? Let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Deb Gordon. She earned both her MA in psychology and PhD in clinical psychology from Fuller Theological Seminary. She serves as the Gary D. Chapman Chair of Marriage, Family Ministry, and Therapy. She is a clinical mental health counseling program director. She's also an associate professor at Moody, and she directs Moody Bibles Counseling Center and is the founding president of Civ Consultation. Dr. Deb Gordon, thanks so much for being on No Matter What. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be with you. Well, I'm thrilled. I always love listening to clinical psychologists, anyone in that, the social, behavioral, psychological field. I am just drawn to it, fascinated by it. So I was super excited to learn about your book and to have you on the show today. Yay. I love it. (laughs) Okay. So Dr. Deb, Let's just get into the nitty gritty right away. So first of all, Embracing Uncomfortable is all about facing our fears while pursuing our purpose. This book is so great. It is a easy but challenging read, (laughs) but one that I would highly recommend to anyone. But what I love is so much of this, obviously you are writing it from your area of expertise as a clinical psychologist, but it's really written from your experiences. You share so many personal stories. So I want to start there. You start at the very first sentence in your book reads, the hardest season of my life started when I was 29 years old. So would you tell us about that time? Maybe give us some context prior to that season of hardship, and then we'll kind of go from that personal experience to how your book unfolded from there. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is. I mean, you captured it so well. It was so important to me to write a book that not only had kind of practical life tools, but also personal stories so that that readers had something to just resonate with and feel validated in their own experiences. Mm. And so, yeah, for me at 29, so just to provide some context, I'd been working on my PhD for six years at that point. I started young and my sister was living with me. She was she was young. She was a teenager at the time. And two weeks after I graduated, my mom actually committed suicide. Wow. And um, and my world just came crashing down. It was not expected. I mean, she had been battling mental illness, but there really wasn't any. My my family and I really didn't anticipate something like this. And for me, it just caused almost this identity crisis in my life. And you know, late twenties. That's kind of a normal developmental time frame for for people to kind of be questioning like what is what do I believe about myself yeah. and what do I you know hold to be true based on what I've experienced versus how my I was raised in my family of origin and so for me it became this season of really confronting this false belief that I didn't know at the time was a false belief 
of I had to be the fixer and the problem solver in my family in order to have worth and value. And mm. I guess to give a little bit broader context, um, my siblings and I are all adopted. And, you know, we have we have pretty amazing adoptive stories. I don't want to say like we've, we've been, you know, we, we dealt with a significant level of trauma or even really wrestled overtly with with major attachment issues but I think no matter what it's there and it's present for adoptees and so for me it was this question of what keeps me secure in my family and it was this Mm. this false belief of like I have to solve the problems and so here I was 29 I had just finished my PhD in clinical psychology and I think that's like the essence of problem solving at least what I thought I've come to really see the profession very differently and my mom takes her own life. And I'm confronted with this like complete fear of not only could I not fix this, like there's nothing else I can do. She's, she's gone from this earth. And so God took me through this season of really just starting to filter out, like, this is not who I created you to be. This is not a part of your identity. And we've got to get rid of these lies that you're embracing Mm. and trying to live out. Mm. So where did you even go from there practically? Yeah. Well, I went to a beach. Um, <laughs> like, no, literally. Talk about, yeah, literally a beach. Um, I talk about it in the book and it was a beach in the winter. So it's not like it was this amazing tropical vacation, <laughs> but um, I, I did like God just provided this season and it was tough. Like I don't want to sugarcoat or minimize the, the, the challenges of it, but I was really in this kind of isolated season of like daily confronting these beliefs about myself. And I had people around me. I was going to my own counseling. I eventually started working with the spiritual director even. And it was like, okay, now I know that I'm not like, I might enjoy um, journeying alongside people and even investing in my family and, and helping them thrive, but that's not my identity. And so as I started to strip that away, I really had to answer that question of what do I believe my identity is? And you know, we were chatting before we started recording. The book isn't necessarily written for an explicitly Christian audience, but I love when I can share, for me, the heart of my identity was was very simply, but very profoundly, like you're created in God's image. Yeah. Nothing else can, can add to that identity or take it away. And if that's the core foundation of who you are, then there's so much freedom in everything you do out of that kind of freedom to confront your fears, freedom to pursue your purpose. And now you have to figure out what those things are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would you say, I mean, you see a lot of clients in your role as a clinical psychologist. Would you say that like the vast majority of them are at the end of the day grappling with this idea of I have taken on a false identity of things that have been put on me as a young child growing up, things that I think I'm good at or whatever, um, versus, you know, not really knowing their, their true core identity. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I love the, the, the quote you chose to open the podcast. Cause I feel like that's it. We, we place our identity in situational or circumstantial parts of our life. And so, you know, for example, I might be working with a client who is single and in their late thirties or early forties, and they can't see any sense of hope in their life being fulfilling Mm -hmm. and validating because of the absence of this relationship or, you know, a client who's going through divorce or job loss or a, a significant grief and loss in their life. And it's not to say, you know, Christian or non, I think more easily with my Christian clients, it's not to say that they don't kind of have this rational or head knowledge of where their identity lies, but it's living it out day to day. Yeah. 
So, cause that's really easy for me to go. Yeah. I know that my identity is an image bearer of God. It's a child of God, yeah. but practically speaking, the way that I am making short-term and long-term decisions, the way I view my life, I mean, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah. We, we, you know, it's, it's so easy if we step back and look, I mean, you know, even just looking in the last like 24 hours and I know for me, and I want to preface like, everything I talk about is so much easier to talk about than it is to do. And my season at the beach, I mean, I was only at the beach for six months, but cause it's expensive, but, <laughs> um, but like the hard work, it's still ongoing. And in that really concentrated season, it was a couple of years for me to really figure out like, this is the core of who I am and what's most important to me. But yeah, if we look at those short, you know, smaller decisions in our day-to-day life, it's like, Ooh, I said yes to that because I want this person to like me, mm-hmm. which then means at the most practical level, I'm actually giving them a piece of my identity. Like if they don't like me, then mm. I'm rejectable or I'm unworthy or all these other lies that we just allow to seep in and, you know, dictate and motivate our behavior and our thoughts and our mm. feelings. Mm. So one of the things I pulled from kind of the beginning of your book is this idea that because we don't know who we are and we don't know what we value, we're making the wrong short-term decisions, essentially. We're, we, we might even know what we want our life to look like long-term, but because we haven't defined how we really get there, we're making short-term decisions that not only don't feed into those long-term, but really what you say is that we're making decisions based on immediate comfort. So mm-hmm. unpack that for us. Yeah. I'll use a practical example. Um, You're so right. And I think part of it is we function on autopilot. I mean, you know, how easy it is to just get up and kind of go about our daily routine without interjecting and and pausing and really reflecting. But um, one of the things I talk about in the book, and as you mentioned, I live in Chicago and I, for a number of reasons, um, decided to make this commitment to walk to work for a year. And I lived two miles, like door to door. I timed it two miles from my home to my work. And I started this in January, which was seri- kind of hot. And that's a yeah. serious walk in Chicago, like two miles for real. with Chicago weather. Yeah. yeah. And I grew up in Phoenix, so I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm not acclimated to this Arctic temperature of the winter. But I started in, in July and it was, you know, it was a mildly uncomfortable, but not too bad. And you get into fall and it's beautiful. And then January hits and I'm like, what was I thinking? Yeah. And so my alarm would go off, you know, it's dark, it's cold, my bed's warm, I'm comfortable. And there were days where I would wrestle with this decision internally, like Jacob and God moment wrestling where I'm like, I'm not doing it. And, you know, my other self would be like, you made this commitment, you're going to do it, you're going to regret it if you don't. And ultimately, I did end up and I and I got up and I walked, but it was uncomfortable to do so. So, you know, just kind of using this physical metaphor, here's my bed, it's warm, it's inviting, it's comfortable. I wouldn't mind another 15, 20 minutes of sleep. The outside is cold. It's not inviting. It's a 40 minute walk to work in in oftentimes snow or sleet. But at the end of that year, I can tell you that those moments of discomfort where I really embraced this commitment were so much more rewarding Mm. and really minimal in compared to like the discomfort was minimal and compared to the overall satisfaction I gained Mm. from following through and accomplishing this commitment. Mm. So one of the things you talk about is from your own personal story, you were locked into a specific outcome and you didn't know how to navigate life when 
it changed. And I think a lot of us face this certainly in our 20s, but probably really also 30s, 40s, 50s. I'm not sure it actually changed based on the decade, (laughs) but I think it happens maybe sometimes for the first time to us in our 20s when, you know, for the most part, some of us do have catastrophic life events that, that really rock the boat. But a lot of us kind of go through school, we go to college, we do all the things that have been prescribed for us. And then we get into our 20s and life doesn't look anything like we thought it was. And we had specific outcomes in mind. But now that all of our circumstances are different than what we expected those to be, we don't know where to go from there. So, you know, practically speaking, what do we do? Yeah. And I, I love this question because I think for me, and, and I want to just say like that I don't have, I don't assign any understanding to why this happened in my life. I don't know why my mom took her life. I don't know that I'll ever understand that the side of heaven. Um, but I do believe God has gifted us with meaning in our circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so for me, one of the, one of the meaningful takeaways was, you know, without realizing it, this was one of my biggest fears mm-hmm. and it happened. Yeah. And while it was tragic and overwhelming, and there were certainly days where I wanted to crawl into a hole and never face the world ever again, I survived. Yeah. And by all accounts, I'm thriving on this other side. And I think that's one of the things that is so important that, that God kind of gifted me with this meaning and takeaway of is I could face this big fear that I thought would kill me and realize I could survive in it. There were options outside of it. And if I just focused solely on the loss and the devastation, which I did need to spend a time grieving and still come back to and grieve, you know, life, grief is a lifelong process, but, but I couldn't just stay focused there. I had to also look at the other opportunities and options around me. And so I think how that translates to these experiences where life throws us this major curveball, and we're now faced with circumstances we didn't anticipate or what we poured our life and our work and our energy into didn't result in the outcome we wanted is this concept of radical acceptance. It's saying, okay, this is what's in front of me. It's not resignation. And I really want to emphasize that. It's not, all right, well, I'm just going to give up now. And, you know, there's nothing I can do, but it's, okay, this is my circumstances right now. And that's important because they're going to change. I don't know how they're going to change, but that's just the nature of life. It's, it's dynamic. We're, we're constantly moving and evolving in our circumstances and seasons. And so this is what I'm navigating right now how do I want to approach it? What do I want to take ownership of? Um, what do I have control over? Which is sometimes minimal, but we yeah. always have choices and control over our lives. And and then it's, you know, the stance between the radical acceptance piece and the grief and loss piece too. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated in the section in your book where you talk about radical acceptance, kind of the difference of accepting the situation or even accepting how you feel about the situation, but not then allowing that to move into like judgmental absolutes or move into, I don't know, like that's the situation or your emotions be the end all of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh my gosh, totally. I mean, I can use another personal example. I think this is something that I navigate. This is something that a fair amount of my clients navigate, but the singleness piece. So I'm 40 something, (laughs) closer to 40 than (laughs) anything else. I'll say that. (laughs) Um, 
And I totally thought in my younger years, like by now I'd be married with kids. And, and that's something that I had to radically accept. And when I'm able to do that, again, it's not resignation. And that's that key piece you're talking about. It's not like, well, I'm going to be single forever. And okay. For any of the listeners that are 20 and 30, I don't want to minimize your feelings, but like at 40, I can really say that that's a big struggle. Like in my twenties, I definitely had that feeling of like, oh my gosh, all my friends are getting married. I'm going to be single forever. And it was devastating. And even into my thirties, I was quite distracted because I was still kind of raising my sister and and being there for my family, but definitely moments of like, this is never going to change. And it's so interesting because I feel like in my forties, I have a lot more (laughs) like life experience and evidence to say oh my gosh, I'm going to be single forever. But I don't know that. Like, right. I really, really don't. And and funny enough, like in my heart of hearts, I don't actually believe that mm-hmm. for whatever reason, mm-hmm. but I am in this season. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's probably not fair. I am a psychologist. I work with couples. And so I get a really great kind of front row view of how marriage actually doesn't solve all your problems oh, yeah. and doesn't actually make you feel less lonely. It actually lonely. makes them bigger, I, I think. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. So you know, I think, all right, this is my season and circumstance now. What are the things that I can appreciate and enjoy and value? And yeah, there are days where I'm sad and then there's a sense of loneliness and, you know, kind of questioning. But if I stick there, if I'm like, oh, it's always going to feel this way, I miss out on the joys and the opportunities, which are pretty awesome, I've got to say. Yeah, yeah. If you know Annie Downs, she always, when oh, talking about her, singleness, yeah. she'll say, well, yeah, I'm not married yet. La, la, la. I mean, you know, it's it's never like this, like, yet, like pointed thing, but always she she throws in that word yet. And it's not this, like, name it and claim it type, you know, theology. It's really just her. I think it's the radical acceptance, but packaged with the, but I still really, I still really long for that. And I still really hope that I totally. am married someday. And I just love that posture of holding that open-handedly of well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not married yet. And la, 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 la. Um, totally. Okay. Let's go back a little bit, at least in your book, talk to us about the comfort myth. Mm, yeah. You know, so I was thinking about it when I, when I was talking about the story of walking and how to translate that into something that, you know, maybe some of your listeners are also wrestling with. And it's this idea that, Usually what we choose for comfort is more of like a justification Mm. than it is actually moving us towards the goal or or the desired outcome. So let me just talk about, I don't know, somebody that's struggling in their marriage. And again, oftentimes it's, it's so layered, right? So oftentimes it comes back to that identity piece of my spouse's reaction to me whether it's validating me or whether it's them taking ownership for something they did that harmed me in some way is directly related to my worth and identity. Like if they don't validate me or if they yeah. don't take ownership, then, you know, deep down, it's like my worth is not, is, does, is non-existent yeah. or minimal. And so we do things that kind of pull for that. Like we, we either highlight or we, you know, we engage further in conflict or we withdraw from conversations and we think it makes us feel safe and comfortable. And I'm not talking about, I want to be really careful to say, I'm not talking about like, much larger issues like abuse and trauma, but in the day-to-day conflict of a relationship. And what it's actually doing is it's not representative of our values, which, which can be really difficult to live out in that moment. Like if our value is relationship, what does it look like to, to embrace the discomfort of listening, even if you feel justified in your response and you feel the need to kind of continuously 
argue that position until the other person hears you? Or what does it look like to take ownership over your part and have to kind of humbly admit an apology? All of those things that are that are more uncomfortable in the moment, but actually move you towards what you value most. Mm-hmm. And yet we we typically default to, you know, using my metaphor, climbing in bed, staying under the covers, yeah. keeping warm, but then failing to accomplish the goals that we really set out for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At some point in your book, you ask the question, I'm, I'm, it's not going to be a direct quote, but what is it that you wish you had accomplished or something? What do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, yeah, so totally. It, right? What's something difficult? Yeah, it's so funny. This is how I pitched the book. So I I sat down with the editors and the, and the you know marketing people and I said, write down one thing in your life that is, that's been very challenging that you've wanted to accomplish. And I said, whether that's maintaining or pursuing health and wellness, yeah. you know, enhancing effective communication with your spouse, yada, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you pose that question in the book and immediately I'm like, oh, this and this. And, you know, in your book, you're like the one the one excuse you can't give is time. Like yes. <laughs> you unpack that later. And, and I knew I'm like, oh, yeah, this is all about priorities. We have exactly the amount of hours we need in a day, including the time that we need to sleep. Like, you know, if God created it this way, this is how it's supposed to be. And we have enough time. But what it will take for me to do those two things is at least right now in this season of life is that it means I have to get up earlier, at least 30, if not an hour 30 minutes, if not an hour earlier than I currently am. And I, Dr. Deb, I failed right this morning, day one, I failed. <laughs> My alarm went off and I'm like, you need to get up because Dr. Deb said that, you know, this is, <laughs> I can choose the comfort of my bed or the uncomfort of getting out, but really working on some things I want to work on. And I hit the snooze button. <laughs> but the darn snooze button. Tomorrow's a new Man. day. Yeah, this is day. true. It is. Okay. I love this. Also, I love, and I'm both terrified by how many people have told me I'm the voice in their head. It's awful. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's amazing. and awful. Um, no, I love this conversation because first of all, I I have a very significant love-hate relationship with my snooze button. Yeah. Um, but it's you're absolutely right. It's this idea. Okay, so one of my biggest pet peeves is when people, and as you mentioned, I teach grad school. So, you know, my students know this. They could tell you like without blinking an eye. One of my biggest pet peeves is when somebody tells me that they don't have a choice. And we have this, mm. those, those words are so quickly pulled out of our vocabulary all the time because we always have a choice. Yeah. We just don't necessarily like the choices in front of us or yeah. the outcomes of those choices, but we always have a choice. In fact, there's some wise person, I can't remember who it is, but who says like even the absence of a choice is a choice. And yeah. so how on earth does that relate to time? Well, we're really good, especially in our Western culture, where we're focused on accomplishment and, you know, goal attainment and saying yes to things. We're really good at overcommitting. And so when it comes down to especially creating the space and the time in our lives to really do the work of embracing uncomfortable, which involves figuring out what your values are and defining your purpose, we have to create space. And that can oftentimes mean saying no to something or taking something out of our lives. And this involves this principle that I talk about in the book called all decisions involve loss. And so, you know, like your example is great. Getting up 30 extra minutes early in the morning involves the loss of sleep, but then it also involves a gain. And we usually focus only on the gain. And when we fail to recognize the loss, so, so using this example, you are gaining 30 minutes of sleep but you're losing out on this time to whatever you're wanting to fill that time with. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when we can kind of reorient ourselves to thinking about 
what the losses are and then deciding, oh, this is the loss that I really don't want to experience. Like, let's say you're saying yes to work all the time and the consequences lost at home with your family and your kids. Is that the loss you really want to incur? Mm -hmm. And then just practically speaking, take it small. Like if 30 minutes is a struggle and that's okay, try five. Yeah. And then build up from there. Yeah, no, that's good. And I think you talk about this in the book about how we justify so many things. I mean, it's really easy for me. I am exhausted. Like I have two boys that are not quite three years old and one and a half. Oh my and gosh, I'm tired. Like I'm tired. Yeah. Um, they sleep through the night. So it's not like I'm having to get up in the middle of the night to like help them or anything. But I feel like I'm just still coming out of that like two under two newborn fog. And so it's really easy for me to be like, I deserve to sleep in 30 more minutes. <laughs> like, And, but this idea of, I mean, I can, that can be my choice. And I can, and it, this is a season. I, I think it's easy for me to look at everything as, which I think we should, like, this is a season, the next season will be different. But at the same time, the things that I identified as I was working through your book was, no, I really want to be working on these things. And so you're right. Like I'm losing the opportunity to do that when I'm trading it in a gain for sleep. And the other thing I'll, I'll tack onto this is I have always been really anti this idea of hustling. And we talk about, especially in the faith-based female entrepreneur space, it's like, well, you got to get up and hustle after that, you know, thing God has put on your heart or whatever. And there was a time when I was writing my first book that I got so angry because the advice I kept getting from other authors and other folks in the industry was like, well, you just got to hustle. It just means you have to wake up at 5 a.m. And I was like, I am not doing this. <laughs> like, I don't care. I'm not doing it. I obviously got it done. I found other ways to do it beyond waking up at 5 a.m. to hustle. So I think even... Even that still gives me this like tension point. Something about me getting up early. I just don't want to do it, Dr. <laughs> but realizing what you said, it's n- that's not me hustling. It's me bringing 30 extra minutes to my awake, to my awake and alone time. Because that's the big piece for me right now as a mom with little people. Like they start stirring around 640, 645. Like it's, I'm done. You know, anything yeah. I want to do accomplish in solitude and quiet is gone until 8 p.m. And then I have my husband that, you know, I did choose to marry him. So I should choose to like hang out with him and spend time with him. I love it. Okay. Going back to the comfort myth, I want you to tell the story about the woman in the coffee line at Starbucks behind you. (laughs) And how, how does that like feed into the comfort myth? Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is one of my favorite stories. So I was going to get some coffee and I always, when I tell this story, I always feel the need to be like, this woman could be me any given day. Yeah, well, like, I really want to emphasize this. Yes. I do not absolve myself of this responsibility. So I'm in line and this woman is behind me and there's another woman in front of me ordering. Literally, I kid you not, I'm not even exaggerating. It took her probably six minutes to order a cup of tea. It's amazing. It was like it's a gift. the most, it, yeah, it was like, <laughs> I wish I could have recorded gift. it. I don't even know. So the woman behind me is literally just kind of freaking out and she's doing the thing where she's muttering initially. Can you believe like, what is, come on, keep, you know, I got to get going. And then it gets gradually louder and louder. And she's clearly kind of trying to get everybody around her riled up to get this woman out of the line so we can move forward. And I don't know what prompted me. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. It probably was because it was definitely not me and my selfish sinful nature, but I got to the front of the line finally 
and I put my order in and then I turned to the lady behind me and I said, and what are you having? And she was like, I'm just getting a hot chocolate, like kind of all defensively. And so I turned around and I said, and um, I want to get her hot chocolate. And it took her a minute to realize what was happening. And then all of a sudden she kind of panicked and started profusely apologizing. And, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed by my behavior. And, you know, I just kind of tried to gently validate her like, it's okay. You know, it's no problem. I understand. I'm usually the one running late. And, you know, so I paid for the order and she was kept trying to make sure that I didn't pay. And then she was trying to pay for it. And I said, no, just let me treat you. So we moved to the side. And she proceeds to tell me, you know, that she's she's in the neighborhood because it's her day to go to her grandson's school and be the secret reader for his kindergarten class. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to surprise him with a hot chocolate. And, you know, in the moment, I, I won't lie, like I was starting to get kind of annoyed and irritated first by the lady ordering the tea, but then more so by this woman. And And the natural inclination for me was to kind of huff and like give her the side eye and, you know, be annoyed. Yeah. But I just felt this sense of like, okay your value is relationship and she's having a moment here. And what would it look like to engage with her? And I don't think, I mean, she may, she probably has no recollection of this story whatsoever. I have no idea. I bet but. she does. I mean, I can't imagine <laughs> because I can imagine being her. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, like I have been the grumbly person in the line. And so I just know when someone responds in a way of generosity and kindness that, you know, like, Oh, that is the person I want to be. Uh, I bet she remembers it. I, I hope so. But I think that's that's part of the key, right? Like one of my core values is relationship. And it's so easy for us to think, oh, okay, big, big picture, right? Like my relationship with my spouse or my relationship with my boss or my relation. Yeah. I love, as you talk about, like a Christian woman entrepreneur, like my relationship with my audience and my customer base. And we we place this like really high, almost insurmountable expectation of how that value plays out. And for me, it was this moment of clarity and realizing no, what's more important is the four minute conversation I had with this woman in line at Starbucks, Mm. which was like a minimal fraction of my day. Mm -hmm. That's where those values really need to be focused on playing out. And it becomes a defining moment for you and your own story of like, that was a time that I chose to live out who God has created me to be, how I want to live it out, no matter what my circumstances were, which in that moment was a one annoying person in front of me and then two a more annoying person griping about it behind me. (laughs) Totally. Just want to interrupt this conversation for a second to tell you about my 25-day Bible study guide in Philippians. In Philippians, Paul teaches us that joy comes not as the result of external conditions, but from internal confidence that God is at work and in control. And I don't know about you, but I need that reminder that my joy comes from my internal confidence that God is at work, that he's in control, that he is always good, not from my external conditions. I would love for you to join me 25 days in Philippians this month. You can learn more at hannahseymour.com or check out some of my other 25 days in Bible book plans. Okay. So I, I want to get to like, how do, okay. So how do we really figure this out? How do we figure out who we are and how we want to be and what we value? And I want you to tell about Betty, the bus driver. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. They're intertwined. So I can actually answer both those questions. So again, my life in stories in the city of Chicago, um, God provides me no shortage of, of, of examples to utilize day to day curse or blessing. Um, but I, so before I started walking to work, 
I was a public transportation, still am public transportation gal. And it, for me, it was just kind of a way, I mean, it was out of necessity initially, but then I realized like, wow, this is a way for me to really connect with and engage in my city. And, yeah. and so I was getting on the bus one day and if you've never been to Chicago, I mean, it's a, it's a city of 3 million people. It's a very bustling metropolitan city. And I live right downtown and we have a stellar transportation system, but it's, it's a tough job. It's a very stressful job. Yeah. So most of the time you get on the bus and the bus driver like maybe kind of grunts in your direction or if they even look at you at all, like totally. they're stressed, they're concentrated. Yeah. Or they yell. <laughs> um, but I get on the bus this one day and this woman who's driving the bus looks literally looks me in the eye and she's like, welcome aboard my bus. This is going to be an amazing day. You're blessed to be alive. When you sit down, tell the person next to you, just make sure you say hi and remind them how lucky they are to be alive. I was like, what? That's weird. Okay. So I get on and I think I said hi to the person next to me. I felt a little uncomfortable. There you go. Not living out the principles in my book um, saying beyond that. But I observed the driver and the whole trip, she would get on the loudspeaker and she would just say something encouraging. She would tell us to look out the window and see something beautiful. And so I couldn't help myself. I worked my way up to the front and I asked her, I said, what's what's up with you? Like, what, why are you engaging in this way? And she, she just kind of laughed at when she didn't even really skip a beat. And she's like, well, I'm just living on my purpose. And it just struck me, you know, I, I don't want to minimize the work of a bus driver by any means. And I think that there's a lot of jobs out there that we, that we sort of put down, but totally. you know, reality speaking, I don't think a lot of people in their young adulthood say like, my dream is being a bus driver, maybe yeah. as a kid. Right. You know, but here she was like literally I don't think it would have mattered if she was the CEO of a high powered, you know, corporate finance firm. She'd be the same person because she just knew that living out her purpose took place in every interaction that she engaged in. Mm. Well, and you said this in your book, but most of the time we equate our purpose to our profession. So my purpose is a higher ed professional. My purpose is an author. My purpose is a speaker. My purpose is a mom. My purpose is, and that's not our purpose. So, so how do we figure out what is our purpose and what do we value? Yeah. You know, it takes some time. I I put some exercises in the book and I've actually been really encouraged by the feedback. I, I honestly, you know, you can find values exercises if you just Google them on the internet. And so I didn't really think that would be one of the more impactful parts Mm. of the book. It was a, a piece my publisher asked me to put in at the last minute. And Honestly, the feedback I've gotten is that's been one of the most um, important pieces for for people reading it. So little shameless plug there, but there are some exercises and they center around things like, you know, who are the most important people in your life and why? What are the most impactful memories in your life and why? And then same for purpose, you know, really taking the time to consider like what, what gives you energy and motivates you throughout the day that's not tied to either, you know, a relationship status that you're in. And when I say that, I mean, you know, a spouse or an employee or a best friend or a son or daughter. What are some of those things that energize you that aren't contextualized or limited to a certain certain situation or circumstance? And then involve your community and your close community, those people that you really trust and value to be honest and give you feedback. I mean, I, I remember in this season of my life, I had a really close knit group of girlfriends that I would ask, like, when you think about me, what are some of the things that come to mind? What are some of the things that you see that I enjoy doing? I mentioned I was going to counseling. So I utilized my therapist and a couple of years later to really hone in on my values. I used a coach, um, but you don't have to fork over, you know, tons of money to figure this out. I think just having that core group of people that you really you really trust and kind of bouncing off of ideas off of them can be incredibly beneficial. Hmm. 
and then sit with it, you know, sit with it for a couple of days, a week, maybe a month. Don't put that pressure on yourself to have to figure it out right away. And what happens if we don't, if we don't figure out our purpose, if we don't figure out our values, it's, I mean, that takes a lot of work. And so what if we don't do it? What happens? You know, I I think the best way to look at it is it's like trying to get from one day's destination to the other without a map or without Google maps (laughs) in this day and age. It's like, you know, we're sort of moving about aimlessly and without direction, but also that, I mean, you mentioned my, my company's name is Civ and it's Civ for a reason, because I think it's really important for us to take inventory in our lives and to sift out Mm -hmm. what's working and what's not. And that's where our values come into play. Like I can look at the end of my day. I can, I, and I, you know, I purposely pause throughout the day and do this and I'll say, okay, the way I interacted with, with my staff member or the way I, chose to spend my time over the last 30 minutes or the last four hours, is that really in line or consistent with my values and purpose or is it not? And if the answer is no, how do I reorient myself to make sure that I'm back on track? Your book for the most part is written from a clinical psychologist lens and not like a Bible believing Christ follower lens. But since I know you are a believer, how do you see the gospel and God's word supporting this idea of embracing uncomfortable, of um, how we find our purpose and values, that kind of thing? Oh, I love that. You know, for me, it's it's kind of the essence of who God created us to be, right? I think about, you know, for me, it starts with the Genesis story. We were created in God's image. And so much of what even the Old Testament and into the New Testament, the the larger picture narrative is about living on purpose. It's about orienting ourselves to who God created us to be and then choosing our decisions outside of that. And I think, you know, and unfortunately, I think as the church collectively, we've we've lost sight of that. You know, we we default to comfort. I mean, I'll go to church on a Sunday and I'll see people kind of sticking with their same people groups or I'll see churches kind of conforming to the larger culture. And I think it's out of that false sense of comfort. So I really, at my core, just believe that this is who God has created us to be. I mean, he doesn't, it's, it's very intentional. Like the scriptures don't promise us kind of an easy, comfortable life, mm-hmm. but they do promise us this security in our identity and worth. And so when we can, when we can really, really embrace that. It gives us the the freedom and the courage to then step into who God created us to be. It's mm. interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I, I think a lot about how we worship comfort and we do anything to get comfort now in this life, but really the only comfort that scripture promises is the Lord himself, right? Like he, he is the Holy spirit is our comforter, but, yeah. and, and when we get to experience the comforter, it's not because I have immediate, I got what I want and I'm comfortable. It's I only get to experience the comforter, when I am in an uncomfortable, difficult season, right? Yes. <laughs> there is a lot of uncomfort to embrace in 2020. I mean, did you have any idea that this book would come out in <laughs> in the craziest year of our generation, probably? Um, oh, my goodness. What would be your advice to folks that are listening to this who realize they've been living life on autopilot? They've been making short-term decisions that don't align with their long-term goals due to their desperate need for comfort in a very uncomfortable year. Yeah. I mean, talk about a surprise <laughs> launch, <laughs> launch period. You know, it's interesting. I, I, a lot of what I'm reading, and this was kind of at the very beginning of the pandemic when it was also new and, and kind of jarring, but I think it's 
actually more applicable now is people were starting to take inventory Mm -hmm. and to really consider like, what is most important to me? What are my values? Um, Because they were being affected. Their lives were being acutely affected by the things going on. I hope people maintain that sense of momentum in this. You know, I think about for me personally, living in Chicago and my family is far away. I haven't gotten to see them as much as I was before. And actually, I love this story. So my grandmother is 102. Wow. And she's amazing. I mean, the woman was the first female superintendent in the state of Colorado. But that aside. Wow. Um, before, I know. She's, she's a legacy. But before the pandemic, you know, I would call her on occasion and certainly visit her. She's, she's in Colorado when I could. But when the pandemic hit and she's living, you know, in an assisted living, she's still completely independent, believe it or not, lives in her own little apartment. She's unreal. But, you know, she was completely isolated and became really depressed and disoriented because of that. And my siblings and I, we kind of rallied around her and just said, okay, let's, let's each take turns calling her regularly. And I had this moment around the summertime where I was like, if my value is relationship, why haven't I continued to invest in this relationship with my grandmother as much as I am now? And this and realizing like this is so important to me. And for me it was looking back and I am I'm one of those people who kind of defaults to the grind. I love working. I love what I do and that's a huge blessing. But because of that it's easy for me to say yes and sacrifice those priorities. So I think God has placed us in a season you know, whether it's pandemic or the racial unrest in our country, where we, we have the opportunity to ask ourselves, what do I really value? And, you know, if I value, you know, I'm harping on relationships because it's important to me, but if I really value relationship, how am I prioritizing that in my life and saying no to other things? But also, how am I really advocating for those and serving as an ally for those on the flip side of who have, who have navigated the, the historic racial tension and and systemic oppression in our country. And I realized I kind of opened a whole nother can of worms with that statement, but it's, it's really just coming down to, if I claim to value this, how am I living it out? Every yeah. Day? yeah. I don't think most of us ask ourselves that question, like hardly ever. <laughs> right. It's one, I mean, cause it is, it's a, we've already determined. It's a lot of work to figure out who we are and what we value. And then if we actually do that, how often are we, Reevaluating the decisions I'm making and the things I'm saying yes to and the things I'm saying no to, the things I'm seeking out and how those actually feed into our values or not. Yeah. On No Matter What, we always talk about scripture. Was there a passage of scripture or a certain story from the Bible that you really clung to either during your six months at the beach or as you have kind of started you know, creating this idea of embracing uncomfortable is, is there a place in scripture that you kind of really hang on to that attaches well to this? You know, there's been a ton that I think specifically were really important in my journey and I name a few things in there, but I think overall in this season, you know, I really kind of come back to Colossians 1.16 and that really, to me, kind of speaks to that purpose thing, right? It talks to um, just how her God in him, all things are created, things on heaven and earth, visible and invisible. And, you know, even goes into that bigger picture of whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. And I just think about that. Okay. If, if nothing else, if you really struggle with dis- discerning what your purpose is, um, 
in life, like just coming back to this idea of you were created through God and for God. That's right. And instead of, you know, maybe feeling overwhelmed by the big picture of that. And, and I love this beautiful imagery of like, just as, you know, our leaders and authority and government were created through God and for God, which sometimes is really hard to, yep. to yeah. embrace. Um, yeah. But in that same vein, you were created through God and for God. And so what does that look like? You know, when you go to Starbucks and you order a coffee or when you speak to your spouse or you talk to your kids or you make a business decision, um, am I making this decision in a way that reflects this identity of being created in God and for God? Mm. And it's as simple and as complex as that. But that's just been something for me, especially in this season that's been really helpful to wrestle with. Mm, I love that. I, there have been seasons in my life where I've really wrestled with like unique purpose and unique calling on my life. And I, I mean, you may be like, well, this is, you that's actually a cop out, Hannah, but I, I <laughs> finally came to a place where I was like, my purpose, I think every believer's purpose is to love God and love others, right? Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself and make disciples. But the way we do that can be unique. And so we that purpose is expressed differently in our lives. The way that you love God and love others and make disciples in your context is totally different than the way that I can based on our God-given abilities, experiences, background, education, your sphere of influence, right? All of that. And I think that's always my encouragement. I mean, just like you were saying straight from Colossians 116 is I think we can spend years and years and years of navel gazing to a a point that's unhealthy. And I mean, do not hear me wrong. Like I, I, again, I go back, I love clinical psychology. I love all of this stuff. I love the Enneagram. I love like, give it to me. I think knowing who we are is important. And at the same time, remembering that our overall purpose is universal as believers. It's to love God and to love others. And then how did he uniquely wire you and what unique experiences and sphere of influence has he given you that allows you to do those things in your unique way? Yes, I love it. It kind of drew me back to what you were saying earlier about the grind and the justification piece. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, I just want to emphasize we can justify based on healthy reasons, but Mm. we can also very often justify based on unhealthy reasons. And so, you know, you were saying like, I need to get up or I'm I'm choosing to get up 30 minutes earlier. And it sounds like those are for healthy reasons, but let's just kind of flip it on the grid and say it was because you were comparing. Mm -hmm. And so the justification is, you know, well, I need to get this done and I, and I've got to accomplish this and there's no time in the day because I got these little, little boys scuttling under my feet. But maybe the loss then, as we were talking about earlier, is, wait, those 30 minutes of extra sleep actually give me the headspace and the energy to be fully present as a mom. Mm -hmm. But, you know, going back to to what you're sharing now, it's that comparison piece that we really have to be mindful of. And I love it. Yeah, God did create each of us uniquely. And that's probably one of the most amazing and gifted parts of being a psychologist is I get to see people in their uniqueness every day. And I Mm. love it. Okay, final question. What is one thing that you wish every person listening right now really understood? Mm, That's a great question. You know, I would say if everyone listening took away this idea that transformation and this practice of embracing uncomfortable really is about the small decisions in life and not the big ones. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, you know, how you build a snowball. 
you start really small and then you start kind of rolling it up into something big. But we don't start big. And so if if we would all take a step back and recognize, okay, in my little kind of micro daily decisions, how can I begin this practice? Gosh, I really think we would see just a major transformation in the lives of so many people. Mm. Dr. Deb Gorton, author of Embracing Uncomfortable. Thanks so much for coming on no matter what. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Before you go, I want to remind you about my book, The College Girl Survival Guide. If you have a college girl in your life that you want to encourage and love on, grab a copy of this book and send it to her with a handwritten note. I wrote The College Girl Survival Guide from my 10 plus years of mentoring and guiding over thousands of college women as I helped them navigate the transition from high school through college and beyond. This book is a culmination of all of those conversations and relationships, emails and heart to hearts, and it contains the answers to the top 52 concerns of college women today. It's real, it's biblically based, and it's designed to help college women not only make the most of their college experience, but create habits that will propel them into their 20s and beyond. You can find the College Girl Survival Guide anywhere books are sold online, or if you'd like a personalized copy that's signed by me and includes an art print that she can hang in her dorm room or apartment, you can buy it at hannahseymour.com.